Hello, my name is Irene Featon, and today I'm chatting with Mary Kennedy, who first appeared on our TV screens in 1978 and went on to be one of the most popular presenters in the country. She retired from RTE in 2019, but continues to work as a broadcaster. Mary recently recorded a programme with the National Symphony Orchestra, presenting the Irish contribution to a Europe-wide broadcast of all nine Beethoven symphonies. It will be aired on RT1 on Sunday, June the 6th at 2.10pm. Mary, you seem to be in that sweet spot in life when you could look back on your successful career and yet look forward to new challenges. Could you tell me about some of the current projects that you're working on? Yes, well, I have to say that um, even during COVID and even though I was retired, um, there was it was a busy time. It was a busy year. And it started off so beautifully with um, dancing, which, um, you know, I just enjoyed so much being part of Dancing with the Stars. And it was a lovely way. A lot of people said, so you're dancing into retirement. And I thought that was a very nice way of looking at it. And um, I was, I suppose, fortunate because because I was no longer working for Nationwide, I was able to take on other projects because when you're working full time, it's just not possible. And I thoroughly enjoyed doing the um, the, the programs for Tiji Cahar because I love Irish and was an Irish teacher. So we did a series of programs called Guaranteed Irish about Irish um, companies. And uh, I, I really enjoyed doing that. And we're doing it again uh, for this filming it in the summer and then it's going out again in September. Uh, another series that I, I worked on was, well, I, I, w- I was an ambassador and still am for the uh, Osteoporosis Society of Ireland because I do really feel that women have to take good care of their health. Um, and I still did the Christmas carols, which was lovely for RTE and all the, the commentaries, which I really like because they're very meaty. They take a lot of uh, study. And um, and they're very rewarding then because you you you, ne- you don't use a quarter of the information you have amassed, but you know it's there if there's a, a, a delay or something breaks down or something like that. So have you been able to wind down at all, Mary, or does it feel as busy as ever? No, it doesn't feel as busy as ever. It's lovely because you embark. I embark on a project, and it might take um, maybe six weeks. But after that, there's a gap. That was not the case with uh, Nationwide. It was just helter skelter all the time but I thoroughly enjoyed it I felt um, a, a lovely kind of flutter of excitement when I would be getting into the car very early in the morning and taking off for somewhere um, down the M50 to visit people and to visit new places and I think there are very few little places that I haven't been to and the welcome was always gorgeous um, but uh, people were so welcoming that the uh, tea and scones and you know thank yous for coming because Nationwide is a wonderful program for shining a spotlight on projects and uh, enterprises um, you know that that wouldn't get the attention otherwise and it also motivates people in other communities to say emulate what um, you know their neighbours might be doing but that was just 24-7 so it isn't as busy as it was but it left time for um, well Everybody had a lot of time on their hands this time last year when we were restricted to the the two kilometres. Imagine it was two kilometres. And I'm thinking of the the run you like to do, which is about a 5k run. So you couldn't even do your 5k run. Yeah, it was done in the circle. It was all done within my uh, my two kilometre. It's a loop. And um, I, yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that. 
And then myself and my youngest daughter, who was with me during um, the lockdown, we would take the dogs out for a walk in the uh, afternoon. And the weather was lovely this time last year. So, no, to answer your question, it's not as busy, but it's very, it's busy enough. I loved doing the, the programmes like Si Sahir for RTE. And also um, I've done two Irish language programmes with them this year so far. And there's another one coming up, which is lovely. It sounds like you've plenty on your plate, Mary. Are there any other projects in terms of like hobbies you'd like to develop or anything like that? You say, now I've got the time, now I've got these gaps. Or do you feel there's plenty happening in your life? Well, there's plenty. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm actually writing a book. This will be my sixth book, my, but I'm doing it with my sister. And uh, she, it's her first book. Uh, it's very difficult to, to co-author a book. I find it much more um, demanding than writing the others where it's just you. But it was um, my publishers, Hachette, approached us and uh, wondered, because Deirdre's in, she uh, runs Celtic Spirituality Retreats on the Aran Islands where she lives. And it's uh, the, the, the working title for the book, which I think will be the same, uh, is called Journey to the Well. And it's uh, about like ways in which Irish people are drawn towards Celtic spirituality even if they don't realise it. It's all it's part of our DNA and it's really aimed at giving people hope and motivation as we emerge from this pandemic. So that's that takes a good bit of work as well. But I would like to have more time for the garden because I love gardening. And uh, yeah, but the, the summer is coming. And also now that the, um, the, the travel restrictions are eased, I can go down to Limerick where my daughter lives and she has two little children now, a little boy, Paddy, who's two, and a little girl, Holly, who's she was born just before Christmas. So what's that been like being a grandmother for you? You have time now, I presume, to enjoy that part of your life. Yes, it is lovely because um, I always say to young mothers, you know, just don't worry about the, the jobs, the chores, because... I, when I was, when I had my children, if I saw them say happy and not fighting and maybe just watching uh, something on television or playing with toys, I'd say, OK, they're quiet now. This is an opportunity for me to fill the dishwasher or to put on a load of laundry in the washing machine. And then, you know, you miss those moments. You miss the, the fun parts, I feel. And also when you're working outside the home, um, it, it's difficult to find time for everything. So you're chasing your tail the whole time. This is glorious because uh, you are able to get down on the floor with a small child, bring them to play football, read books to them. And then at the end of the day, <laughs> the classic, hand them back. <laughs> <laughs> it's like having the best of both worlds, isn't it? There's a reason why you have your children in earlier years because, gosh, the energy levels that are demanded are huge. You were born and reared in Clondalkin, County Dublin. Starting from your earliest memories, what would you say were the key defining experiences in your life? Well, as a child, I think the fact that my mother and her sister got married on the same day, they had a double wedding and they bought houses side by side. They were two houses right beside each other. So I think growing up, having your aunt and uncle and three cousins next door uh, was was very um, well, I suppose we just took it for granted, but I think it was very special. And I think it defines, uh, it defined me um, and the rest of my family as people who are very, very uh, like family conscious. Um, and um, 
like well it was it, there were lovely moments as well because we didn't have a huge amount of money but we uh, it was as if we had two televisions because there was one television next door and there was one television here and on a Saturday night the women would be in one house watching the Lake Lake Show and the men would be in the other house watching the match of the day so that was very convenient we always had Christmas Day together uh, and then on New Year's Day we'd go to the other house and we always went on holidays together so um, I think that was quite um, influential um, because it was like being part of an extended. There were seven children all together and you just learned to muck in. You know, it fascinates me. When I started teaching, uh, it fascinated me at the the people, the young children who everything was handed to them, uh, not even in a monetary fashion, but that they didn't have to think for themselves or as I say, muck in. I think every child should be taught how to muck in. You mean roll up your sleeves, Mary, and just partake in everyday family life? Yeah, and have your chores. And when we got our summer holidays, uh, everybody had their chores in the morning before you were allowed to go out to play. And one day it might be uh, cleaning the silver. Another day it might be, um, you know, putting on a wash. Another day it might be washing the windows. And after that you were free. But you did have to earn your, your free time. You know, um, I... I don't know. I think <laughs> there's a there's a yeah, I think children nowadays and when mine were young, I think we just did everything for them. And it was from a, a protectionist and a, a you know, a, 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 a parental wanting to ease their passage through life. But I think it's good to knock the corners off. My goodness, the corners were knocked off us. And Mary, I'm also wondering of the freedom of childhood as well. That idea of opening the door and to be back in time for tea. Was that was that how you were reared as well? Totally, yes. Um, and you weren't you weren't wanted before tea time. You know, you were just uh, you just went out and said you'd be told to be home at six for your tea or um, at one o'clock for your dinner. Um, and we, we just played everything. We played rounders. We played tennis. There was so little traffic in those days that you could use the tarmac dividing the, the road to as a tennis court and you could get a whole game finished before a car might come, which was wonderful. Um, I did, there were kind of situations where I think, and one of them in particular probably uh, marked me, I'm, um, there, were, there were bullies, you know, there were not in our group, but there would be kind of bigger boys or bigger girls. And I can remember um, taking different routes home from school to avoid passing by so-and-so's house because you might be bullied. And I think it made me very um, kind of anxious and also I hate confrontation. I can't take confrontation at all. I would, you know, go around the, the houses to avoid a row. I'm just not good at it. And I, I, I think that might have, uh, you know, started that. The other thing I cannot stand is uh, an injection, which is very unfortunate because, you, you know. got your AstraZeneca. And I did get my first vaccine, but I hated that. And I do definitely think it was because the public health nurse when we were brought for our vaccinations, I must have been very young because, you know, you get them when you're very young. And she was the public health nurse. We had to go down to the clinic and she was not a very kind person and not a very nice woman. I was frightened of her. And to this day, I have an aversion to uh, getting an injection. But you went ahead regardless with the for the vaccination. Oh, yeah, you have to give bloods and there are times when you just, you know, having children, you, you have to have injections as well. But no, I've never gotten used to it. And I always say to whoever's giving me an injection, I say uh, I bruise very easily. <laughs> so that they Be kind. <laughs> Which I don't. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. 
And Mary, then moving on to your career then in RTE, a very successful and long career in RTE, what would you point out as some, there have been many, of the defining moments? Well, I was thinking about this and certainly a defining moment for me was uh, being asked to go to Calcutta or Kolkata, as it's called now, uh, to provide the commentary for uh, the funeral of Mother Teresa. And it was the first time I'd ever done a commentary. It was also the first time um, that I was in the developing world. And it really uh, had a huge influence on me. Um, Calcutta at that time had a population of 18 million. And of that 18 million, 5 million of them lived on the streets. Now that's more, that's the population of this whole island. And they were living on the streets of this city. You couldn't walk uh, from here to the door without uh, passing over somebody who was, um, you know, just on the streets sleeping. They would wash in the gutters. The, the, the municipal authorities would gush water down the gutters in the morning and they would soap up and they would you know wash themselves there. Um, they were uh, begging. I can remember you'd be in a car, stopped at lights, and uh, this woman came with her uh, baby to the, the window. And I mean, I had, I don't know what I gave her because I'd only just arrived. I didn't know the value of the money. And I gave her money. And then it was like a swarm of bees. So apparently... You can't do that. But it gave me a, a wonderful regard, respect and concern about the developing world. And since then, I've been back to Calcutta twice. And I've also been to about seven or eight countries in Africa. Um, and people say, oh, you yeah, know, yeah, you've been to Africa. And I said, yeah. I said, what did you think of Cape Town? I've never been to South Africa. I've been to Malawi and Eritrea and Ethiopia and um Uganda and Tanzania. Um, and, you know, it's always there for, for, for work, for voluntary work. So, uh, but I do love it and I love the people. And I'm just wondering then, is that the contrast between Ireland and going to a, a third world country like, like in, in Africa as well and keeping, keeping the two in your mind as well? How does that just affect your sense of your values back in Ireland then when you come back home and say, gosh, people can live with so little? in these countries. Yes, I can remember on my first visit to um, Africa, it was to Eritrea and it was with um, a charity which was uh, organised within the Irish Farmers Association. Um, it was called Self Help. And um, I can remember the, the, the people would be clamouring for the, the empty water bottles when we would be going, you know, because it was very hot. Um, and they knew that we would have loads of water bottles. So every time we stopped, uh, you'd hand out the, the water bottles. And then I can remember uh, later that week I going to visit a, a village and in a um, going in to see a, a woman's house. There was a woman sitting with her baby and one a two litre plastic bottle, you know, the two litre water bottles. She had gotten five uses out of that one bottle. She was the, the base was like a little cup up on a shelf. Then she had two, um, the, the cylinders, you know, from the body of it. And they were wrapped around little saplings outside to stop the goats from chewing on the saplings. And then the neck was turned upside down and she was using it as a, a funnel. And she was uh, giving the baby uh, sips of water from the cap. Now that's... That's sustainability, uh, for sure. That's sustainability. Sure. It's also... Um, you know, making do and they have so little. But they, the thing about um, the people in those villages in Africa is they are genuinely happy unless they don't know. I, I dread to think what it's like um, in the present circumstances with the uh, with the pandemic. But they were happy and all they wanted really was 
to get an education. So in ways, it reminded me very much, and I've said this several times, it reminded me a lot of what Ireland was like uh, in former times, because uh, my grandmother was from the, the country and she lived to be 102. And she spoke about, like, whenever you get um, do well in a test at school or something like that, she'd say, oh, well, the sodded turf wasn't wasted on you. And it was the whole reference to when she was walking to school, you brought a sod of turf for the fire. Um, she, they all left school at kind of sixth class, um, but she was kind of bright. So she stayed on and she would, look, I suppose she would nowadays be called an SNA. Um, uh, she was helping the teacher. Um, but like, uh, they were very happy people and uh, they sang and they had their, um, their kind of bohantiacht which they have in Africa as well. The animals would have been in the, you know, inside in the house, which they were in Africa as well. So um, I do feel uh, that Africa will develop very, very slowly, as we did too. But I never really had a problem, um, you know, kind of justifying my own life when I came back, because I think well, the way my mother reared me and the way she had been before, I hate waste as well. I really do. And I also love uh, bargains. All my friends know I just love bargains. If if I see something, I loved my first trip to New York, going to Century 21, which is the discount store. And um, uh, at the end of the, the your, you know, your your bill, your, uh, you see what you have spent, but most importantly, what you have saved. saved. They tell you how much and you the pleasure saved. And the pleasure That's in that. wonderful. <laughs> you talk about motherhood as what defines you. So in terms of the being a, a mom to four adult children now and our grandmother as well, how has that shaped your life? Uh, well, I, I think it has shaped it totally because from the time my first daughter was born, um, I felt, well, first of all, incredible love and a, a bond. Um, but uh, that, that's my responsibility. I have chosen to have these four children. They are my first responsibility. And sometimes people say to me, oh, you never, you know, um, would you not have wanted to do such and such an RTE? Would you not have liked to have done X or Y? And I uh, always said I would maybe, but I wouldn't have taken uh, a job that would bring me away for too long. I mean, when I was working on Nationwide, people were flabbergasted. Um, I would leave very early in the morning, even to go to Kerry. If we had to be in Kerry at 10, I would leave at about 5.30 in the morning. Um, and uh, I would always come home uh, that that night, unless we were fol- filming there the next day, um, I uh, I just feel that that's that's my role, and I suppose um, being separated and then divorced, this is a an extra responsibility. But that so has my ex husband. He you know is was there as well. But I just felt you know they they come first always, and I it's lovely to see Eva now because um, well she hasn't really gotten to the stage where you know of enrolling children in things like football and hurling and things like that. Paddy's too young, but she just is the the love that oozes from her mm. for that little boy mm. and for the, the baby girl is incredible, you know, and she just... You recognise oh, that, it sounds like. It's, yeah, it's very satisfying. And as a single parent then, did you find it all the more stressful then or were you, were you able to pull in a lot, lot of support from your family, from that close family of yours? Well, from when I was uh, working on Nationwide... First of all, it started in October and it finished in May. So I was free all summer while they were on holidays. My 
ex-husband, the children's dad, he was, you know, he would mind them half the week. And also my mother was wonderful. She was a, 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 a great uh, support. And when I was when I'd be working on Nationwide, we would I get home at about half five and um, she would have been there. And I, I, I loved the fact that I'd go in and I'd look on the cooker and the hob, and I say, yeah, the potatoes are peeled. <laughs> yeah, there's dinner there. <laughs> and but the biggest, the biggest treat for me was uh, she had done the homework <laughs> because uh, I just found it very difficult to to do homework. And and that's me having been a teacher. I just you know I loved when but she after had the a long homework. Long days work, Mary, and travelling the country. I think that's totally understandable. <laughs> Mary, can I ask you just about what's very much current at the moment? is um, a lot of debate has been on Liveline. Challenge 4 did a documentary also on the perimenopause and the menopause itself. I'm wondering, what was it like for you working full time with four children, managing uh, and that very high profile career, managing that change in your life? Um, Well, it it was difficult. My menopause started at 46 um, and uh, it lasted for about, well, about 15 years, I'd say, 46, 56 no, 12 years. It was uh, finished by then. It was long um, and it was, I suppose, um, it was it was very obvious. I mean, I, I would be in the car and maybe look down at my arm and it would there would be a river of water r- flowing down my arm. But um, and I did I did uh, reference in my in one of the books I wrote that there are the seven dwarves of menopause. I can't remember them all, but I know one of them is itchy, uh, sleepy. Um, cranky, um, bloaty. Those, all of the, you know, and then there's a few more as well. Um, and yeah, the, I did have all of those things. But to be honest, um, I'm glad. the 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 reason I think that I didn't hear many of them, uh, many of the the debates or any of the the case stories that were uh, coming on the radio, but uh, that I think the value of what's being discussed openly is for men to learn what menopause is like because women know women know what menopause is but i do think it's been very educational for men because you know that you do need to know if your if your mother or your partner is going through um the the menopause it's it it helps a lot and i i just you just get on with it i mean you know what's the alternative you know to not having the menopause it means you've died young and you know and I also think that women um, are very, um, like, physiologically, we are very complicated and complex and uh, very rich makeup of, you know, of what cells and genes and all sorts of things. You know, we have puberty. We have uh, the ability to have children. Uh, we then, our body goes through change. Um, and that's like, it's, it's yes, it's dynamic. And me- all men have is puberty and then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and Mary, did you feel free to be able to talk about what you were experiencing at work or did you just keep that maybe to your female colleagues and friends? No, well, um, I, I didn't make an issue of it and nobody did. We just got on with it. Um, I Obviously, if you were in, um, working in studio, as I was at the time, you know, sometimes the, the perspiration would be coming down my face. Well, you know, and the, but the makeup people would be there and they would make sure that, you know, you were OK. Um, it was never, no, it was never kind of, uh, kind of a taboo, I have to say, in, in my circle of friends. And I think for people for whom it was, it was kind of a lack of understanding or maybe an older generation. Um, 
Yeah, uh, and I did try uh, HRT, but the problem with the HRT then was um, after there was only a certain amount of time you were permitted to to use it. And after about six years, my GP said, you know, come off that. Now, I believe somebody was telling me that apparently it's possible to stay on HRT uh, all the time. But what happened with the HRT was as soon as you stop, all you've done is postpone the symptoms and you're right back to where you were. When you talk about it going on for years, that coming off the HRT, you were back into the menopause again. That's what extended it. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I do think there's new ways of supporting women uh, with HRT, which is really important. But the word has yet to get out. There was such a sense of the cut off five years and it's not safe after that. But it seems there's new research emerging to say that it is safe. Yes, it's it's sophisticated to an extent where it's possible to stay on HRT for the rest of your life. And so you keep the oestrogen flowing, which I think that's wonderful. But um, no, that was not the case in, in my day. Yes, there's other benefits as well. Mary, just stepping back for a second, I'm thinking about your position in the eyes of the nation. Like you, a lot of us grew up looking at you. You joined RT in 1978. We've seen you present the Eurovision you commentated on the Queen's visit to Ireland, that hugely important event for the country, the inauguration of President Michael D. Higgins, another very important event. And you will be seen as a trusted voice in Ireland. And I'm wondering, how does that sit with you to hear that? Sometimes it's said to me from time to time, it's very flattering. Um, but I just feel that uh, I can remember when I was going for uh, the audition for the Eurovision um, and I, I auditioned three times. Um, I didn't get it the first time, I didn't get it the second time, I was successful the third time. And I can remember um, I met Gay Byrne, Lord rest him, uh, going in uh, to the the, the uh, building. And I was going in for my audition the third time around. And uh, I said, he was saying, well, the best of luck. And I said, well, have you any advice that you might give me? And he said, just be yourself. If you try to be something you're not, you might get the job, but you'll fall flat on your face. Or you might, you will always eventually be found out. And that I have taken to heart. And I I did go uh, for a while. I was giving um, talks to people who wanted to get into television. And I I think Irish people are very astute. And if you try to be something you're not, uh, people have no time. for. I I can tell it at at a drop of a hat when somebody is, you know, just... False. And um, I I think people appreciate that. And I don't feel I do feel that I am, if you like, uh, privileged to have been a spokesperson for certain events or for certain groups of people. And uh, you don't mess around with that. You know, I think it's uh, it's 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 important and it's nice for people to feel comfortable with you. I'd hate anybody not to be comfortable, you know, if I'm interviewing them. And I always say, you know, this is just a chat. And they say, yeah, right. But then at the end, they say, you know, it was fine. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I think that's one of your gifts, Mary, is your ability to help people to relax as well. And I think that comes across very strongly. And on your other point as well, I think Irish people have a, a very strong radar as well for in terms of what's what's true. We have an expectation that people be themselves in this country and anything else doesn't quite fit in the society. I also think that's why one of the reasons why we are so, as they say, well got abroad, you know, when, um, well, first of all, 
they're fascinated. Uh, people in other countries are fascinated by the fact that when, no matter where you go, if you're Irish, you'll find somebody that's from the next village or uh, that, that knew your uncle or your brother or whatever. Um, and uh, I, like, uh, yeah, I, 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 what I hate are notions. I hate people who have notions. Um, and uh, I, I think Irish people have fewer notions than maybe other um countries and therefore we get we we do very well we punch way above our weight in the states in france in, in the uk everywhere mary listen that is really really kind of you to give me so much time thank you very much i really appreciate it oh, not at all not at all i enjoyed it this podcast was recorded and edited by jj vernon thanks for listening you can listen back to previous interviews on irishexaminer.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.